0: the Plumly pod episode 35
1: prepare to lift the lid on all things
0: education not indoctrination your voice of reason for home education the Plumly pod And welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is John Waters, celebrated Irish journalist, author, and freedom fighter, if I may say. Welcome to the podcast, John. How are you? I'm
1: very well, thanks, Sarah. Very well. All things considered,
0: quite well. Let's get straight in there with those all things considered, shall we? We've yeah. got an awful lot to talk about, John. You took the Irish government to court during what I call the pandemic to Ooh. demand the judicial review against all of the tyranny that was unfolding. A lot of people in England and other parts of the UK have absolutely no clue that this took place. As far as I'm aware, this is similar, is it not, to what Simon Dolan did with Keep Britain Free in England. He took the British government to court over the same sort of thing. Am I right in putting it that way?
1: That's correct. That's very, very similar cases. Obviously, the key difference in Ireland is that we have a written constitution, whereas Britain's constitution is more embedded in jurisprudence, as it were. Case law. But, yes, myself and Jim O'Doherty, who's another journalist, or spent a long time in the mainstream media like I did, up to 10 years or somewhat less ago. And we had been doing commentaries on streams online for a few years about certain trends in Ireland. And we had run for election, actually, rather bizarrely, in 2020, in the general election, both of us in different parts of Dublin. And we did, respectively, I guess you might say, all things considered. But then when this lockdown thing came on stream, we were really non-trust, really, by the idea of it. And the question in our minds was, like, what, is this even possible? Is this even like, can this even be contemplated even in the most extraordinary situation possible? And we don't see any extraordinary situation. Could you do this? And nobody else seemed to think that it was even a question. And they simply outlined a whole lot of lies, which were manifestly already lies, that 85,000 people were going to die before Christmas and so on. And we said, well, obviously we thought, look, there's going to be lots of people who are going to have the same impulse and the same response. And there's going to be a rush to go to court to stop this. All kinds of people, you know, eminent lawyers and former ministers for justice and former attorneys general and former Taoiseach and so on and so on. And so we thought, well, we're going to be trampled in the rush, but just in case, we'll put our marker down just to kind of just make the point. And once the runners are clear, we'll decide then what to do, whether we should back out or whatever and let the big guys fight it out. Nobody else did it. Nobody else did it. And not only did nobody else do it, but everybody turned on us and attacked us for doing it, was was quite bizarre. That was really the moment when it was like we entered into this, what really seemed to be a kind of a nightmare movie in the landscape of our own country. The background was the same. The landscape was the same. The scenery was the same. But the people seemed to have utterly been transmogrified into some kind of new species. The politicians are behaving like tyrants. And we were doing what anybody for the, all of our lifetimes would have done. Say, what the hell? And everybody thought this was the worst thing in the world that had ever happened. And for two years, Sarah, I couldn't walk down the street without being screamed at by light like clad lads in bicycles as they would accelerate and fly past or let loose a string of obscenities at me for having the temerity to defend my constitution against the most egregious rights grab in the history of the Irish state. Now, what happened then was, of course, the predictable that the court's lined up to repel us. We, of course, were taking on the state. The courts are the state. They're the goalkeepers for the state. Let's be honest about it. It's not that we didn't know this, by the way. We didn't do this out of any mindset of naivety, shall we say. Because, But we wanted to dramatize the situation and make visible whatever would happen. Now, we didn't necessarily assume anything, but we kind of had a fairly shrewd idea that they weren't going to let us just walk in challenge the thing and say, yes, actually, John and Gemma, you're 100% right. This is a shocking thing. This should not have happened and it will never be allowed to happen again. Next case. (laughs) That wouldn't happen. We kind of had an intuition that wouldn't happen and it didn't. But we said, we're going to just push this envelope as far as it can go to see what they say. Because it's very clear. The Irish Constitution doesn't permit anything like this. It doesn't permit it. It actually forbids it. The only circumstance where you can, under the Irish constitution, declare a suspension of the constitution is if there is a war or an armed rebellion, which represents an existential threat to the survival of the state. That's it. Full stop. And nothing like that obtained whatsoever. So what were they going to say? Well, we saw what they were going to say. They filibustered us for in the high court for several weeks. Then they kicked the case out. They refused permission. Then we went to the court of appeal, which is a, an entirely different level of gangsterism, and they made a mockery of us. And of course, the journaliers and the media then were having a field day simply. They refused to tell anybody, the readers or listeners or viewers, what we were actually saying in our proceedings. What they did was they latched on to sort of off-the-cuff remarks from the Florida court in response to things the judge said. Or things the judge said then, which were purely staged for the benefit of the journalists to make us look as ridiculous as possible, or as crazy as possible, or as whatever as possible. So the public had no idea what we were doing, what we were saying, what we were asking, or anything like that. We were simply asking, in a number of headings: Look, we have a fundamental right section in the constitution which guarantees the right to free assembly, free association, right to walk down the street, all these things. How is it possible that a police officer, a garda, as we call them, has the right to say, where are you going? He doesn't have that right. They can't do that. That's not possible under our constitution because there is no war on. And even if there was, when there was, in the 1940s, no such tyranny was brought into being, even though they did on that occasion suspend the constitution under that article, which is Article 28. But everything was open. The cinemas were open. The pubs were open. The churches were open. The football matches were played. There were whist drives. There were dances. You name it. People could travel wherever they wanted, provided they could get petrol. That was the only limit on their movement at that time. And here we were for a head cold and we were actually imprisoned in our own homes on pain of being prosecuted for leaving them.
0: It's a disgrace. It's beyond, I have to stop saying it's beyond belief at this point because let's face it, after what's happened, Anything's on the table. Mm. We must just point out here that both you and Gemma are extremely experienced professional journalists. You spent yes. 24 years at the Irish Times. So we're not messing about here, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. John Waters knows precisely that he wasn't going to waltz into court and, ha- and have everything go his way. But did they even hear your evidence? And if so, in which courts did they actually agree to hear evidence?
1: No, we never got to an actual hearing of the actual case. What we were seeking was simply leave to have a judicial review. Mm -hmm. And of course, they brought in the other side. We This was an ex-party motion, as it customarily would be. And then the one judge sitting alone decides on the basis of the papers you submit, whether you reach the bar to make an arguable case. And that's really a perfunctory matter. Unless your papers are written in green barrow and are completely kind of gibberish, then the case goes ahead. And in fact, any number of judicial reviews were heard during the lockdown by people from Lithuania and Latvia and all these places for all kinds of aspects to do with their own personal grievances about going home to Latvia on a holiday and losing their social welfare while they were away, type of thing, that kind of stuff. This was happening every other week. And we were actually looking at the fundamental questions concerning the freedoms and liberties and rights which are guaranteed under the Irish constitution. And we couldn't get a hearing. So we went to the high court. We were rebuffed. We went to the court of appeal. We were rebuffed. And we went to the Supreme Court, and eventually, with a little bit more courtesy than the lower courts, in fairness, we were rebuffed. Now, it's more complicated than that, and I've written a great deal about it, because this is very interesting in the way that the Supreme Court, had. they clearly knew that we had a strong case. In fact, one judge found in our favor, and he was the most eminent judge, a guy called Gerard Hogan, most eminent Irish judge of the last 50, maybe 100 years, like he has written all the textbooks, very brilliant guy, and he found in our favor. Wow. All the others went the other way.
0: Well, congratulations because probably nobody's ever bothered to say so. Yeah. But that is an amazing achievement. I know it's not what you wanted, but what a fantastic achievement.
1: Well, it was, you know, in a way, I don't say this in any way against Simon Dolan because I know exactly what he was up against, but we went rather further than he had gone in a Mm -hmm. way because we got to the Supreme Court. They shot him down. He had one judgment in his favor at one point, but in general, the courts imposed on him a kind of a circular logic, which is what we got essentially, which was that, well, yes, the constitution is there and all that, but here was an emergency and the government has to do something and therefore everything the government did was valid and justified. End of judgment.
0: I must be beyond naive because I can't understand why they wouldn't at least just hear the case. Why not just hear the evidence? How can you dismiss something out of hand when it's especially something of such importance just in case a mistake has been well, made. A yeah, mistake even.
1: Yeah, well, you see, normally, like, when you reject an application for judicial review, it would be because it has absolutely no substance whatsoever. Quite. And that a blind man on a galloping horse could see that from <laughs> 500 jars. That's the kind of idea. Got it. The bar is yep. that low, right? But I keep telling people that in order to actually say that we had no case, it took something like a dozen hearings something like 30 hours, something like 14 judges to say, no, no, there's no case here. Really? (laughs) When normally this is done by one judge sitting alone next party. He just says, yes, yes. Doesn't even read the full paper, just glances down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the I's are dotted. All the T's are crossed. Yeah, yeah. The grammar seems fine. It's not in green viral. Yeah, off you go.
0: It was so obvious it took all that time and all those judges to say, oh, there's nothing to see here. We're yeah. not even going to look at a shred of evidence because we yeah. know there's nothing to see here. Yeah. yeah. Me think the lady doth protest, right?
1: Yeah. And also the judge in the high court had tried to, a guy called mean, and he sought the caricature of what we were doing in the most extreme way to make it look like we were weary tinfoil hats as we walked into court and tin foil boots and tinfoil <laughs> kneecaps and tinfoil blazers. That was the vibe. And of course, the journalist laughed it up. And interestingly, you would have expected this is where it really got, I suppose, a little bit dark because the kind of, all that is predictable in a way, even before it was somewhat predictable because it, that's the kind of way journalism was going. But what we found interesting was that even on what you might call the alternative side, there was no coverage of our case. Nobody actually anywhere, they're all kind of so-called lawyers online doing short videos saying we were talking nonsense and blah blah. But nobody actually ever in any platform said, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline what they said in their papers and I'm going to critique it. And I'm going to say, okay, that's a point, but that isn't the point. And that's the point that's, you know, and so on. Like that's what journalists used to do. Tell the public what's happening. And then give them your opinion, if your opinion is in some way constructive or denunciatory or whatever it might be. But let people know what you're talking about before you dismiss it. Nobody did that.
0: It's precisely the reason I asked you, because I was very angry on your behalf. I knew some of what was going on at the time, because I do follow Gemma Doherty on her website. I'd seen you on here, there and everywhere. And of course, I read your substat. Guys, if you don't read John's substat, he writes unchained by john waters and that's at johnwaters.substack.com you should really sign up because it is yeah. wonderful it's one of the few that i read religiously it's a fabulous substack it's one of the best if not the best i have to say
1: thank you very much for doing it. but you know just about this thing about the case like what i found even people on our side will say oh well cuz you see the judge put out at a very early stage that we took the wrong road, we took the wrong fork in the road, that we should have gone for a plenary summons application rather than a judicial review application. Now, the difference broadly in that is that a plenary summons is a personal grievance, a personal issue in which you take the case and you're seeking damages. And of course, they wanted us to be doing that because then they would be able to depict us as trying to grasp and to exploit the terrible pandemic, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people being exploited by these horrible two former journalists, blah, blah. The idea of us doing the judicial review, there was no gain for us personally in that. And they didn't want us doing that. So they put out this thing that we had taken the wrong route. Now, every other case that was taken in any context in relation to the lockdowns was judicial review. But in no other case did they say that's the wrong route. It was only in our case, right? So there's all this nonsense going on. But what annoys me is that to this day, people on our side say, "But it's a pity you took the wrong route there now. You know, you should have gone the other. I said, well, who told you that? Oh, I I don't know. Quite. I tell you who told you. The judge told you. The judge told you. So you think the judge is an honest broker in this? That's what you think? Despite everything else, you think that the entire thing is corrupt? In this one instance, in this one particular context, you think, well, the official figure, whatever he said was right. And he said it with the best of intentions. Wow.
0: I can't begin to understand that kind of mentality. After what we've just lived through, they're going to believe somebody like that. It's beyond my comprehension almost. Why, though, do you think the old media, the alternative media, the new media completely ignored this case? This is something that's bothered me for quite some time. Why do you think they ignored you? Well,
1: that's a good question. Okay, I, I'd at some point, there's kind of international. I mean, I, I had a problem with, from the very beginning with the international media. I mean, at a very early stage, some people I knew got on to Steve Bannon and called me and so, said, look, we're trying to get Steve Bannon to cover your case. And I spoke to Bannon's people, and they seemed interested. But then they just kind of drifted away. Now, at the time, it was interesting that Steve Bannon was kind of war room pandemic. Bit of a giveaway there. And he's (laughs) gradually refined that role. So he's now completely against the pandemic. But he wasn't in the beginning, you see. And a lot of I found with American people, with American intellectuals in particular, there's always that issue that they took the pandemic completely at face value. And only critiqued it to the extent that in a sense that the measures were being abused or whatever. That was how the American thought. It was quite different to Europe in that respect. In the European context, well of course in continental Europe there is a linguistic thing, and there's also the Napoleonic thing, that their law their legal systems are quite different, their Napoleonic system. They're much more authoritarian than ours, which is a common law system, which is like which comes from the English system. I was somewhat interested and surprised by the fact that nobody very much in the UK Took it up. Now that's kind of an historical problem, actually. You get in Ireland because there's this kind of provincial view of Ireland in the UK and UK media, which is like that. It's a kind of a backwater of the British Isles, as they call it. We don't call it the British Isles; we call it the Irish Isles. But it's like they call it the mainland. They call themselves the mainland. They say, "No, no, we're the mainland. You're the offshore islands." Uh, you know, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. So there's an element of that in it. Now, I was on with. Richie Allen and people like that, whoever, he's yes, Irish, yeah, he's yeah, not yeah. in the UK. But in general, no, they weren't interested. I don't know. I mean, it was all very interesting in that sense. I mean, because there were some very interesting comparisons to be made and some interesting discussions to be made while Simon Dolan was going. Our case was long before Simon Dolan's, but the two cases were running in parallel because ours went on much longer. And it would have been a really fascinating discussion to get us on with Simon Dolan and talk about the relative comparison and maybe get Lord Johnson's assumption on into the same discussion. That would have been amazing because we had an awful lot of things to say to Sumption. And he, I say, would have an interesting thing to say about our constitution. And we could have really broadened that discussion. Nobody was interested. It's very interesting. But to come down to the Irish situation, the, media, the Irish ultra-media thing is, I mean, yeah, I did lots of streams of different people and so on and came up in various ways and that was fine. But there is one alternative media which is kind of straddling the line between the mainstream and the alternative. That was ie, And they were extremely hostile to us. Extremely hostile. They never they could easily have done that, what I just described a few minutes ago. taken our papers, broken them down, say this is what the content of the case and this is our experts view, blah, blah. Fine. One way or the other, we couldn't have complained about that. They didn't do it. Everything they did was hostile. They picked up on details the judge said and inflated things we said or were reported to have said. And there was a background to that where the editor of Grip.ie is a guy who's involved financially in 5G. And one of the things that we were actually trying to draw attention to was the possibility of 5G being a central element in all of the things that were happening. And for that reason, I think they basically, we we got no credibility from within the alternative scene. Because of course, if they had done it, then that piece of journalism would have been available to other commentators to look at and to work from. But they didn't do it. So that's what it is. I mean, I found really, sorry that this has been one of the most damning things about the whole thing, is that the amount of envy and begrudgery and jealousy that exists within the alternative scene is hugely debilitating to everybody and quite damaging and has really retarded our capacity to make strides and to win hearts and minds as we might have done to much greater effect had we actually decided to throw in our lots together and cooperate a bit more.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've personally experienced that only yesterday. There are people within the alternative community and or the alternative media who are just, I'm not really sure what they're doing here. If they can't see who the enemy is and if they can't all pull together to fight that one very dark and very dangerous enemy, then I don't think they're in the right place at all. And thank you for reminding me about good old Richie Allen, because I did hear you on the Richie Allen show about this case, actually, yeah. and I shouldn't have left him out. So shame on me, because I, I do listen into to Richie, so good on him for Years. being the one guy in the UK who was actually remotely interested in this vitally important case about liberty versus tyranny.
1: Yeah. It's
0: beyond my comprehension that nobody in the old media in the UK in particular, I take what you're saying about the European the Europeans with their different languages and all of those kinds of problems. I understand that a bit more, but there's no excuse for people from the UK not covering this. No, there isn't. It was our best chance, wasn't it? It was the best. I mean, imagine if you'd won or imagine if you'd had a much more favorable outcome and how much that would have helped everybody else out because we could have cited that then, couldn't we, in other countries?
1: That's right. But you see, this actually brings up an issue that I'd been aware of in journalism for quite a long time before Mm -hmm. any of this happened which is a syndrome which I used to remark upon, that journalism was, we now realize that it was a lot of it was ideological stuff coming from the left, but it wasn't just the left. There was a general sense. I mean, I used to say to people, look, we're journalists, right? Therefore, we're interested in making interesting material, whether it's on radio, interesting discussions or on TV, and also writing interesting articles. That's our primary purpose, to stimulate the audience. Our primary purpose is not to make some point that will make some political gain for ourselves or anybody in the public realm. That's not the purpose of journalism. So, but more and more, I saw that journalism was, over many years, becoming like that it was like a dramatization of issues in order to achieve a certain outcome. That it, you would be invited onto a discussion on the radio or the television, and the purpose of the discussion would be to defeat your point of view. And the producers would make every effort to load the panel to ensure that that happened and to ensure that they present or tap your ankles if you were making points that were in any way kind of at risk of having traction in the public mind. And the same thing applies now in this whole situation, where if there are agendas at play, you will find that more and more, you won't get a voice even from people who appear to be on your own side because you're not going to further the agenda that they favor. Whereas I don't care who I'm talking to. It doesn't matter what their agenda is. If I invite them on, I want to hear what they have to say, no matter where it takes us.
0: I completely agree. I've had some stick for this podcast because on the one hand, I'll allow people to make comments such as the Bible's a bunch of fairy tales, and on the other hand, I'll bring on uh, you know, Pastor John William Noble to give us a chapter and verse. And yes. I keep trying to explain to people that's what free speech is. That's what it means to have a free mm-hmm. speech platform. And nobody wants to hear from me on this podcast. People are sick of hearing from me. They hear from me because they work with me or I work for them or whatever. They're here to hear from my guests. That's Why true. would I do that? And isn't it disrespectful to your audience to be trying to bully somebody down a particular avenue or to pressure somebody for an answer yeah. about something? Why don't you just let the person speak and let your audience trust the intelligence of your audience to make up their own mind?
1: Or to exclude somebody because you don't agree with what they say in the first sentence. Well, that's not journalism at all.
0: So, What's your opinion, John, on what has happened to, I don't want to call them the real media, let's call them the legacy media, the dinosaur media. I'm very rude, I call them the fake news media because it's my belief that the media that we're supposed to all trust because they're the hardworking journalists are actually the journal liars. And the people that get called and smeared as the fake news media are the real journalists like yourself, Gemma Doherty, and more. How has this happened? Everything is upside down, is it not?
1: It is, yeah. It's really, quite horrific, really, what's happened. I mean, essentially what's happened is that journalists and so-called journaliers, as I call them, they're posturing as journalists. They're passing themselves off now in a model of the media that is absolutely inverted, from telling the truth to telling lies, as a mode of survival. What happened was that the media came under existential threat from the internet. Because to some extent, of advertising drift, but also because of the media immediately started giving their product away for nothing. Now, the media had enormously machines built up over many years of investigation, of inquiry, and so on, and commentary that were actually very hard to replicate. You couldn't, because, you know, I knew that from an editor. When I was an editor in magazine, it wasn't that easy to find people who could write and who had things to say and who could find out things and stuff like that. Still isn't very easy to find that, to get that. But they kind of panicked or something and they started giving their product away and the next thing they had no income or virtually none. And that left them in a very exposed state for this moment. Because what has happened here is that the interests, the powers that ought not to be, as we say, have now decided that actually they can buy, the media were available to be bought, to be purchased. And they could simply say, okay, well, look, your old model is kaput. Telling the truth, telling the facts, that doesn't really get you anywhere anymore. You can't survive. You can't pay your journalists. You can't, you have to re- lay them off and you have to fill your spaces with nonsense. And why not just publish what we want you to publish and we we'll pay you huge amounts of money in the form of advertising and whatever. I'm talking now about big pharma. I'm talking about the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. I'm talking about the Irish government, the British government, whatever it might be. They say, okay, we'll keep you. In the style or approximately to which you become accustomed, if you just tell lies on our behalf, they wouldn't have said that latter part, but that's what they're saying. And essentially that's what's happened now. I was in a cafe last weekend and we were with my wife and a friend and this guy came on I man that we know, he's a doctor and he came along and he said, hello, hello guys, nice conversation, you know, said, we had a short conversation and we sat down for a few minutes talking to it and he left out on the table in front of us a copy of the Irish Times. And I said, to take that thing away," he says. "That's full of lies now. Don't you understand? <laughs> Don't you understand that that is not what you think it is? It's not a newspaper. It's the opposite. Whatever is the antithesis of the newspaper, that is what it is." And he's looking at me funny, and I said, "And I planted the that masthead. See that? Said, that masthead is the same masthead as was there when I was working for that paper, but now it means something completely different. It is completely corrupted because it is trying to actually trade off." the credibility that I and others built up for that newspaper over many, many years, many decades, for the purposes now of telling lies which will destroy Ireland, our society, our nation, our people, our children, our children's future. Don't you understand? And he's looking at being dumbstruck. He has no idea what I'm talking about. Because he has been taken in. Well, the Irish Times always tried to tell the truth, but didn't necessarily always succeed every day but it was always a valiant effort. It's now become a lying a platform for journal lying. I actually have a thing, Sarah, where I wrote one of my first articles that I wrote for Substack, I think it may have been the first, was about what I call the newspaper. And I actually <laughs> was suggesting, it was a proposal for the rejuvenation of what used to be the newspaper industry. And what it was, was basically that I thought it would be a very good idea, given that one of the things I miss about not being able to, buy newspapers now is that you constantly miss the usefulness of the actual newspaper, the newsprint in all kinds of situations. Like if you spill something on the floor, coffee or something, you can put down the paper and it'll suck it all up and you can just dispose of it. Or if you're painting, you can lay it down on the floor and it'll catch the drips, right? Or if you're defrosting your fridge or whatever. And it's also good for things like cleaning windows and things like that. Or taking out the ashes from the fire. You'll just wrap them up the next morning and damp it down under the tap and it's perfectly safe. You can leave it outside the back door and so on and so on. So I call this the newspaper. But my idea is that in order to save the industry, what they should do is publish the papers, the newsprint every day, but without any of the articles. Just the masthead and the blank pages. And maybe every couple of weeks, give free with every copy packet of crayons so you can give it to your child, to your children, and they can do drawings on the newsprint on the floor. I think that would be an absolutely boom for the industry. Could really revive the whole thing and we wouldn't be troubled with all, with the damage that would last for centuries of the kind of lying that now takes place in those
0: rags. Well, I think that's a grand scheme. Why not? I mean, it would do a lot less harm, wouldn't it? And it would, oh, it would actually yeah. do some
1: good. Do some good. And I mean, I would pay two euros for a blank copy of the Irish Times. Totally. I, no problem. I'd pay three, four. Because... I miss that part of the paper.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. I love hard copy things. All of my notebooks, I don't keep notes online. I write with a fountain pen and a notebook. I love to hold things. I miss the newspaper too. Yeah, I do miss it. Another
1: great use for newspapers is if you're making raised beds in your garden, like no dig beds, you know, that you just lay the newspapers out on the grass, on the weeds, and then you tramp them down and then you wet and then you put down your mulch on top. And the next thing you can do there, put down your potatoes in the root stout method, and you will have beautiful potatoes without any weeding, any digging. It's you know, like, we really need this back. Like, the only time I can get a newspaper now that I, you know, if I stay in a hotel and they're giving silly the out free, I steal as many as I can for those kind of purposes. But I'm careful never to read them, not even when I'm, you know, that when you're kind of taking out the ashes and you might be distracted by some headline. I try to make sure that never happens to me. Cause it will contaminate my mind with lies.
0: Yeah. It's like looking at Voldemort or something, isn't yeah. it? You, you might melt. You mustn't ever look. Yeah. I agree with you. I, we have a zero tolerance policy on the fake news media in this house. There is no BBC lies 24 allowed here. There is no journal at all. I can't bear to look at it. The day our television broke was one of the best days of my life. I said, good. We're not replacing it. At the end. Sarah, when did you
1: begin to really identify this moment? i am be very interested to see. Just to compare notes on that point, when did you identify that there was a real problem? Was it the COVID thing or was it before that?
0: Unfortunately, it was a long time ago. There's a few things that made me realize that everything wasn't what it seemed. And the first one, I was 16 years old. I had a part-time job because I was obviously studying my GCSEs, the exams we sit in England at 16. So I only worked a handful of hours a week at the local supermarket. And I'd done a few extra hours during the summer holidays because obviously I was waiting to get my results to see whether I was going to sick form and study A-levels. And the government stole my money. They applied an emergency tax code, even though they knew full well I was 16 and clearly had hardly worked any other hours during that year, just a handful each week. Yeah. So I was never going to be in danger of going over the allowance that you get, the tax-free allowance yes. that everybody gets. And yet they stole my money and worse, they didn't give it back to me. And I had to really fight to get my money back. It was obvious that I was due it back because I hadn't broken any of the rules or anything like that. I was young. I was still in full-time education. It was obvious I was going to at least pass my exams. In the end, I did a lot better than just pass. But I just couldn't believe that the government, I'd been brought up in a lefty family, a socialist family, whereby they all voted Labour and they all sang the red flag and all this crazy stuff. And if you ever argued with them, you're an outcast, you're a black sheep and all the rest of it. So I'd been through that kind of indoctrination, not just in the home, but obviously also at my school, which was a local comprehensive. And I'd been brought up to believe that the government were the good guys and that they would look after you and all of this nonsense, you see. So that was my first real brush with any kind of real government agency. And I was furious. I'm from a very poor family. So I was born in a council flat. My dad was a dustbin man. He left when I was nine and a half. And I was the eldest of three children at that time at nine and a half. I became the man at the house, which was really quite difficult. So we'd never had money. We used to carry the shopping home from the supermarkets by hand or from the markets by hand because we didn't have any transport. So it was quite a tough time. So that was a big deal to me losing that money that I'd saved for the summer that I'd earned during the first part of the summer for the rest of the summer. And I was very furious about that. Also then 9 11 happened not so very long afterwards, about a year or so later when I was 17 and I'm no genius, but I looked, as a 17-year-old, I looked at the images, the video images from what was called the news back then, and I didn't understand how asymmetrical damage could cause symmetrical collapse. Now, I'm not claiming that I had those words. At that age, I would not have been able to articulate it that way, Mm. but I knew what I meant. I knew that it looked funny. I did maths. I'm a maths teacher, and my strength is in mechanics, which is like the physics side of mathematics. Mm. So I knew there was something wrong with that, but I didn't really know how to use the internet. The internet was new then. I didn't even know how to send an email really. I'd just learned that age 17, maybe 18. So I didn't know where to go to kind of explore my thoughts or ask other people who might be like maybe asking architects or I didn't know how to communicate with people like that. They weren't in my circles. I was very young and didn't know what to do. So there's a few things that have happened throughout my life. I then spent three years at drama school and I was lucky. Although it's very lefty at drama school, there are quite a lot of halfway awake people, people who don't trust the state, even though they tend to vote left, but they still don't trust the state. And that's because they're obviously au fait with lots of plays. And they know that theatre by its very nature is subversive. So there are a lot of people who knew what was going on. And I had quite a bit of a baptism of fire there. There was lecturers talking to me and acting tutors in ways that I'd never like heard before. It was surprising. And we did a, a Midsummer Night's Dream in second year. And I made a comment that I'd never seen the play with these eyes because the acting tutor, the director of that play, David O'Shea, he was head of school at the time, he was getting us to really dig into the language of the text and decide what the world was like. What is the world of this play like? And it was shocking to me because I'd studied this play twice already, back at sixth form. I'd studied it once for English literature and once for theatre studies. And it was like a sort of banal sort of comedy-ish. I mean, it's that famous line in Blackadder, isn't it? Hours spent suffering at a school desk trying to find one joke in a midsummer night's dream. It's famously yeah. not funny in that way. But, yes. <laughs> but, um, so I'd done this play twice and I thought I knew quite a lot about it. Been in this play twice, got to drama school and realized that I knew nothing about this damn play that I'd done twice already. And I was a very hardworking, very serious thespian. I have to be careful how I say that these days. I'd done yeah. 10 years in Amdram and, you know, I'd been in Shakespeare plays and I played Anne Frank in the diary of Anne Frank and all that stuff, all that good stuff. But. It completely turned everything on its head that those three years at drama school. I I really learned a lot there. And actually some of it was just sowed seeds for later. It just opened doors and it just a tiny little crack in a window kind of thing. And then little by little I you know I saw a lot more. Then my husband introduced me to David Icke and well that was it really. That was the end of my pretense that things were how they appeared to be. Yes. It really I saw him speak for like twelve or fourteen hours or whatever he does at Wembley Arena. And he just joined up a lot of things that never made sense to me. And yes. I went, oh, wow, now that makes sense. Yeah. And unfortunately, I went into this. So when COVID was, I better be careful how I say that. I normally call it Convid, I'll be honest with you. When Convid reared its head, I straight away knew that it was a scam. And I went to the data to prove it as well. So yeah, that yeah. was how I kind of ended up here.
1: With regards to the media, because I worked in the media, I suppose, right up to the time I left, finally, in 2015, or maybe for about a year before that, up to about a year before that, I thought the media was not perfect, very flawed in lots of ways, but nevertheless striving to be honest in general. In the general, of course, there were lots of problems you were into with editors and so on, and from time to time, certain subjects were taboo. I tried to write about family law for years, and it became really difficult, and so on. But in general, I felt happy and proud to be part of this. I'd always wanted to be a journalist. from the, I was a little boy. And well, the word journalist used to kind of excite me in a way that I can hardly convey now. The idea of John Waters journalist was such a thing. To be that thing was to me like to be the greatest thing ever. And I cannot believe that I've now come to this pass that it's such a shameful position, such a shameful occupation. But I remember actually, I used to love the BBC. I did some programs years ago for the BBC and I did some plays. I used to write plays and I did several plays put on on Radio 4 and one on Radio 3. And I loved the BBC. I loved being there in Broadcasting House, walking around where Orwell used to walk around. But then I remember actually about four years ago, 2018, I had a diagnosis of cancer and I had to go in for an operation and I decided I would, I'd been listening to Internet radio, where I used to listen, and I was amazed but this, you could find tens of thousands of stations at just had the touch of a button, and you could get, get kind of any kind of music and then tour the entire world just by the, if you knew the right number, and then the BBC. And I mean, Radio 4 was to me like some kind of, I don't think going back to Radio 1, John Peel and Whispering Bob Harris back in the 70s, that was like part of my formation culturally. So I loved all that. And of course, in Ireland, the reception for Radio 4 and Radio 1 was always very poor. So I, all my transistor radios were, had the backs opened up and I had a screwdriver nearby to retune <laughs> every time. Whispering Bob started to become confused with the static. But the same with Radio 4. For a long time, you know, you could just about make out what was going on. Like you and I listened to these wonderful programs like Start the Week. It yeah, was my favorite, which is like really, really interesting discussions first thing on Monday morning. And then one day when I was going to hospital, I decided, well, the radio I have is too big to bring in, but so like I'll buy a smaller, if I can get a smaller internet radio. And I actually ended up getting quite a neat little transistor, literally like the first transistor you ever got. And he could just, so I brought it in and I turned it on. I hadn't listened to it for maybe a few months. And within minutes, I realized I can't listen to this stuff anymore. Like it's just so laden with ideology and lies and propaganda. I just can't deal with it. This uh, toxic taste of it, you know? And I just turned it off. And I haven't turned it on since. And (laughs) that to me is astonishing. That it just literally overnight, it just struck me that there's something wrong. And now, of course, it's quite obvious that something is wrong, that the BBC is bought and paid for by Bill Gates or whatever it is, as is The Guardian, as is The Irish Times, as you name it. The New York Times, of course, was always bought, it turns out now. But it was owned by the cabal of secret unknowns who run the world and have always run the world. So on. So, I was talking to a friend this morning. I was out for a cup of coffee with him. He's an artist. And we were just saying like that it's got to this thing. Like, Really, we are discovering so much about what the world is really like as opposed to what we were told it was like that we are in free fall. There is nothing to hold on to anymore that we can be certain this is true. This is solid. This is reliable.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. We had a house guest in end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Someone we didn't know very well. It was someone we'd not. We had a house just over because I was doing some writing, doing a bit of ghost writing. And he was talking about this and that. And he made some comment about the BBC to my husband. And my husband said, oh, well, Sarah always says that the only bit you can rely on is the sports news. And I said, yep, when sports day, the sports section of BBC Lies 24 comes on, I used to say, oh, the news is on because I don't consider all of the rest of it to be news. And the only reason I believe the sport is because if Manchester United won 3-1 at the weekend, I would be able to telephone at least three people that were in the crowd of 75,000. They'll be able to confirm. I'll be able to check that that really was the score and that'll be fine. But then when they started playing games behind closed doors... Because of the flu or whatever, I said, well, you can't even listen to that anymore. Because well, how nice. do you know? Like, I can't check with my several friends who would have been in that crowd. So that was the, you know, I'd already been calling the news what it really was for yeah. quite a number of years at that point.
1: That's a syndrome I discovered that maybe 20 years before, in a way. Although I didn't necessarily reach a conclusion about it. It was something like this, that because I was in this particular situation personally that ended up being in quite high profile and not in a good way in the media. So there was a lot of invasion of my privacy and so on, and my private life and was to do as a child I had and so on. But one of the things that really struck me almost immediately from this experience was that virtually every single thing in every single report was factually incorrect. When you actually are involved in the story, you say, but all that's wrong. And you think, of course, is all reporting like this?
0: Yes, it is. Do you know what? When I was 16, I played Anne Frank in The Diary of Anne Frank in an amateur dramatics version at the local theatre, and they came round because they wanted to do a story on it. A 16-year-old schoolgirl plays Anne Frank, blah, blah, blah. It was interesting because the director, Noel Corns, he'd played Otto Frank, Anne Frank's father, in the play at the Royal Exchange professionally quite a long time ago before in Manchester. It was a bit of a hoo-ha. For the local paper, it was quite an interesting story, but they misquoted me in several places. And I was furious. Like, it wasn't anything particularly damaging, but I was absolutely fuming because I'd known very well exactly what I'd said, yes. how I'd said it and why I'd said those things. And I was very careful with my words. I took being in amateur dramatics very seriously. I considered myself to be a professional and behaved like one. And I was furious with the things that they'd written. And the same thing happened to me again later when I was captain of a men's second 11 cricket team. I was captain of the men's seconds at Nutsford. <laughs> which should never have happened, but it did. And they wanted to do a story on that as well. And they misquoted me again in there. And I was even more annoyed because I was a few years older by then. I think I might have been 19, maybe 20 or somewhere around there. And yeah, so I couldn't believe that. Well, uh, yeah,
1: you see, what I noticed, <laughs> that
0: what I found about
1: those that in a sense that in terms of the meaning of the story, let's say the larger mm-hmm. elements of the story, they would be wrong about everything. And sometimes you would get the impression that they were wrong deliberately, that it was contrived in order to achieve mm-hmm. a certain effect. Okay, that was what it was. But also I found that all the little details of the story were wrong as well. Correct. And there could be no purpose for that. They were just like, they would get the color of the car wrong, or they would get the time of yeah. day wrong, or the day wrong, or the place wrong. And everything would be wrong. And yet they would be presenting this story with all this sense of authority. This is the news. And I said, no, it's not. This is all complete nonsense. This is gibberish. This has nothing to do with what's going on. This has nothing to do with the meaning, never mind the deep meaning of these events. You haven't the faintest clue, and you haven't tried to find out because you didn't ask me.
0: You see, I think that this has been going on a lot longer than the advent of the internet. I think whilst there were individuals within true journalism like yourself, I think that an awful lot were writing stories that they knew that the editor would prefer or would like them to write or would reward them generously. I think we've always had a level of infiltration, and actually, I don't just mean of people who are more interested in money than they are in telling the truth and doing their job as a journalist. You know, holding power to account, which is what they're supposed to do, which is something that you do, but most others do not. But I also think it's literally infiltrated by the likes of MI5 because they would have to have people in those positions in order to achieve their aims and objectives. Like we know full well, the likes of Anderson Cooper, for example, at CNN. I think it's CNN, one of the big American news outlets anyway. We know that he did an internship at the CIA. At the very least, that's publicly acknowledged. So we know that they have bad actors, if you will, in these positions, in addition to all the ones who are money grabbers or want to suck up to the editor because they want that promotion or that slightly better job reporting on something that they find more interesting and are willing to do whatever it takes to achieve their selfish objective. And I find that utterly repugnant and repulsive, but particularly with the money That's always been there. But you'd have to question how long have we literally had infiltration. And I'd be interested to find out how long companies, or I should say, charities, quote unquote, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, swear word on this podcast, apologize to my listeners for that. But the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I wonder how long institutions like that or charities like that have actually been funding newspapers. Because one of the things that really blew my head off recently, more recently, was those articles. I don't know if you'll know more about this, John, than me, The articles where they appear to be a genuine article, but actually it's an advert. Mm. And there's a little tiny piece of print that says this was sponsored by Pfizer or whatever. Yeah. And I was horrified. What is that? And, well, and where did that come from?
1: Yeah, well, that is a relatively new, I think, development. And that comes from the existential threat to the media from right. the internet. As far as I can make out, I mean, There was always a tendency of that in certain newspapers because their business model was not stable in the first place. And they would do that stuff just to kind of bring in revenue. And that was always a sure giveaway of a newspaper being in trouble or a magazine (laughs) when they start (laughs) publishing these uh, advertorials. Gotcha. And they were terrible. They were unreadable, frankly. Nobody would have read them. But then it became like that it was almost like news. (laughs) And it was slightly disguised or camouflaged. And yet it was what you say it was. I definitely think that that's the case. I mean, when I was in the, I remember like when I started the Irish Times, the guy who brought me to the Irish Times, he wasn't the editor at the time I came in, but he was the prior editor and he'd gone to the board, but he wanted me to come in because I'd been the editor of an alternative magazine and we had met up and talked a good deal about things. And he was notorious because he was the editor. Douglas Gainsby was his name. He had his desk in the newsroom. He didn't have a separate office and he worked there. And there was a phone. And if somebody came on the phone wanting to complain about an article on the basis that they were an advertiser, we just tell them to F off and hang up the phone. <laughs> Never the twain should meet as far as it's concerned. And that was the iron principle of journalism that editorial and advertising do not intertwine in any way whatsoever. Now the person who's appointed the editor is vetted by the commercial sector. Basically they appoint him. And he's there because he's prepared to do whatever is necessary to make sure that the bottom line of the newspaper remains solid on the basis of deals, not on the basis of great journalism, but on the basis of making deals that will bring in revenues.
0: Yeah. Thank you for the language there, the advertorials. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, perfect. And I did hope that that was a relatively new thing. I've only noticed it. In the last maybe two or three years, particularly.
1: I think it has become all pervasive now in the last three. I mean, right. in, a, in a certain sense, all the f- entire contents with the possible exception of the sports pages, but I'm not even sure about them now <laughs> would be now in a sense, advertorial. All journalists. You see, yeah. one of the things that happened in the last 10 years, 15 years since social media came on board was that the model of journalism. I noticed this in 2014 or. When I came under attack in my own newspaper in the Irish Times, which was the attack that caused me to leave, whereby people who are supposedly my colleagues were up at night on Twitter, some of them under pseudonyms, which I discovered, putting out toxic tweets about me, right? Attacking me for doing my job. And I thought, that's not what either of us is employed for in the Irish Times. The Irish Times, the contract both of us, whoever these people might be, all of us have, is that we bring ourselves and our experience and our intellect and our imagination to the job and we do the best we can to make the newspaper a more interesting read for the readers. That's our job. They seem to think that their job was to promote some ideological program and that I was opposing this and therefore should be attacked. It wasn't that they were attacking me on the basis that it would be an interesting argument between us. They weren't interested in my argument. They just wanted to shut me up. That, you see, is a new model of journalism which comes from social media and also the existential condition of the threat under which the media was laboring, whereby journalists were now urged to go on social media. I never did. I never was on Twitter or any of those things. I hated Twitter. So you would go out and you would promote your own articles and get into arguments with people. That would draw readers then to the website of the newspaper. That was the model that had taken over from the idea of simply writing your best article, delivering it, and getting it into the newspaper, which is always what you wanted to do. And the idea was, I suppose, in principle, I always thought this when I was down the West of Ireland, like driving the mail camera back in the 80s, thinking, wouldn't it be great to be a journalist in the National Newspaper, which I became then several years later. And I used to think, oh, well, wouldn't it be great to work in the Irish Times? You know, what an exciting place that must be with people, you know, joshing one another all the time and stopping to engage in argumentation in the corridors and on the stairwells about this and that and the meaning of life and so on. Oh boy, I couldn't wait to be part of that. When I went to the Irish Times, I found that people hated me because I had a particular view they didn't agree with. That was the overwhelming experience I had from the very start. That other people whose views were different to mine Would basically glare at me as if, "What are you doing here? You know, how dare you come into our newspaper and contaminated with your views?" That was the vibe, and that was kind of the start of the rush, really. I had all those inclinations, mind things from a very early stage, you know, that I took certain lines, say, in relation to what we call the Irish national question. I come from west of Ireland, where Irish nationalism was very strong, particularly in the context of the Northern Troubles and so on, and. I had certain views on that. I had certain views on Ireland's membership of the EU, which I didn't agree with. And I come from a line of people who disagree with it. And these views, I mean, people would look at me as if, like, how did you get in here? That was the thing, you know. Instead of actually saying, "It's great that we have another view in here now."
0: Well, you're in good company here because I happen to be in alignment and absolute agreement on all things EU and the so-called troubles as well. I have some personal interest in that, but that's for another day yeah. because I must, I'm very interested. I will have to catch you some other time to talk about that because I, there's, I still have a lot to learn about that. I have a lot of questions about that as well.
1: Well, still, so do I. I'm
0: going to try to learn some more and then I'd love to come and talk to you about that. On another occasion, if I may. Sure. But well, you said something fascinating as well earlier about you were struggling to write about family law, not because you were struggling to write about it, but because it sounded like there was some sort of pressure put on you. Given we're talking to parents oh, yeah. in the main here, would you mind digging into that a little bit for us? That's very interesting. Okay. Well, to this audience. Weirdly, I mean, although
1: I became a single father around the age of forty, which is twenty odd years ago now, twenty, I had already been onto this topic. Because as a playwright, I've written some plays. And my very first play was actually a play called Long Black Coat, which is about fatherhood. And it was about that idea of that the father was being pushed out of the family and was being pushed out of culture. And it was very interesting, the play, I mean, it was actually set in 2020, believe it or not, and there was a lockdown. Believe it or not. <gasps> and it was like a nuclear war no. type situation. And the play was done in a quite way, which was based on the You may, I don't know if you had it in Britain, but we had it in Ireland, a civil defense booklet that every household had, what to do in the event of nuclear war. And what you did was you got your wardrobes, you filled your wardrobes up with earth from the garden and you put them in the windows, right? That was the first thing. And then you got all your books. There was a presumption that you had loads of books, which people did have, tend to have, even mm-hmm. if it was only the in fact of botanica. And you put them on the kitchen table. You built up a pyramid on top of the kitchen table and then you got under the table with whatever food you could muster around the place. And you listened to the radio then for the all clear. That was the idea. So it was based on this kind of slightly surreal idea. So I was talking about fatherhood and the existential threat to fatherhood and so on. But then Within a couple of years, I found myself in exactly this situation. And I started to tease, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I've said this innumerable times, I'll say it one more time, that, you know, as somebody who comes from slightly left field in magazine terms and journalism terms as a young man and hanging out with all kinds of liberal types and all that, I stumbled on this kind of like nexus of really profound injustice and maltreatment of fathers in family courts, where they were just being treated like a subhuman species. And treated like they were by definition feckless and indifferent to their children or their well being of their children and needed to be punished and given curtailed access, as it was called, to their children, or they could have an hour with their children in McDonalds on every second Sunday, that kind of stuff. And still they were obliged to pay huge maintenance and so on. And I couldn't believe all this. And my first instinct was, Well, when I go back and tell my good old friends on the left who have been fighting injustice in the context of feminism and LGBT rights and so on and so on, they're going to be so outraged about this that they're going to come immediately and demonstrate in front of these courts and say, this has to stop now, right now. So I would often I told them, and they started to kick my head in. They said, no, no, this isn't, you no, know, no, 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 stop. This is you know, just, you can't say this. You can't say this. I said, why not? Well, it's just not it doesn't apply. These things don't apply to fathers. These principles, you know, the fathers, men, they're men, they're white men. Come on, they don't have any claim to be maltreated. That kind of thing. I, oh, but it's true; they are being maltreated. So, anyway, I started to write out this, and I mean, I massively I mean, the was delegations of my colleagues to the editor's office every day, demanding that I be fired for years. And whenever I wrote an article on family court, my column used to drift around. From a, sometimes on the Monday, I could, for a long period it would be on a the Monday then it would shift to a Friday then it would go to a Wednesday and, but if, for a long time it was on a Monday and if I wrote about family law I used to have to submit my article on a Friday but then I could write off the weekend because the editor or the editor's proxies would be ringing me every five minutes either demanding me a rewrite giving out to me for trying to close the newspaper down all this sort of harassment all the time And it just became unbearable. And then the editors would tear apart the article and reassemble it in a completely anodyne fashion. And I would read it after and say, what the hell is that all about? I don't understand a single word of it. And I mean, I was writing about all kinds of things. For example, there was a situation which developed quite late, maybe around 2008 and eight and nine, where because of Ireland's written constitution, which you referred to earlier, families in Britain who were being pursued by social services and their children were being taken from families. Their children were being taken and forcibly adopted out of those families. For very flimsy and tenuous reasons, they would flee to Ireland, thinking that the Irish Constitution would protect them because it had actually written guarantees of the rights of families. And, of course, they would end up being pursued by social services in Ireland, who were completely in league with their British colleagues, and the police and so on would be all on the same side and they would be arrested. And so I started writing about this, Like, it was hopeless. I mean, I would end up with these cryptic 800 words of complete kind of gibberish, frankly, that after the editors and the lawyers had before finished. with it, This went on for years. And then the same people, 10 years later, told me that there was a sacred right of gay people to get married and adopt other people's children, male or female. So two men, one man as a father, biological father, there's no other kind, had no rights. But two men,
0: disconnected
1: from any child on the planet, had a claim on a child they put their eye on, and every right to be treated and given full dignity as parents of that child, if that's what they were demanding. That's where we ended up. And the politicians were telling us this was the most important fundamental human rights of the century, were the same people who had essentially spat in my face when I raised these issues on behalf of natural fathers.
0: Why do you think the editors in particular had this attitude towards the information that you were trying to put out in the newspaper? Where does that come from?
1: Well, that's a really, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure I can give you a definitive answer, but I can give you the answer. No, I have arrived at at this moment. And it's obviously, it's a work in progress. At the time, I rather naively assumed that this is all ideological and that's what to do with feminism. Mm-hmm because there was this paradox about feminism, but whereas feminism claimed to be seeking equality for men and women, and claimed also to be asking that men do their share in relation to the rearing of children, so as to liberate women into the workplace and so on, or to give them freedoms that they didn't, at the time, allegedly have. It, that was kind of the version. Nevertheless, when I said, okay, well, I want more or less the same thing, I'm just saying that like, fathers want equality of parenting rights, right? And that will involve that we will be doing ipso facto, willy need our share, our 50% share or more, if you want, of child-minding, whatever that is, delighted to do it, want to do it, privileged to do it, and so on. They said, no, no, oh, no. But isn't that what you implicitly were asking for, is it not? No, no, that's patriarchy. That's, that's a different thing altogether. This is what I was getting back. So I thought it was about that. But now I realize it wasn't about that at all. Because what was happening fits perfectly what's happening now which is essentially Correct. the erasure of the family, the erasure of normative parenting roles, whether their father or mother equally, the fusion of genders, the movement towards Euro, what was called human 2.0, whereby there would be no natural procreative capacity whatsoever, and that we will end up essentially with state-appointed families, basically Nominated and chosen by the state or its representatives, and the idea of biological complementary sexuality and so on—those things are all tests. And we saw those. I saw those very clearly. Those issues in the in, when we had a referendum here in Ireland in, the, in 2015 on so-called marriage equality, which is about gay marriage, and of course it was it really stuck in my call That very same people who had, as I said, refused to grant any concession to fathers. And then I'm not just talking about single fathers because they're in a particular situation because under the Irish constitution, they didn't have any, there was no reference to them or to that condition. It was not considered at the time the constitution was drafted. But it also applied to married fathers who were separated so that even though divorce had been brought in, no provision had been made for the fallout in family terms or the damage to children that might arise as a result of a breakup in a family. These things to me, these things to me to be problems that could have been fixed, for example. People say, well, how's your solution? Well, my solution is very, very simple. I say, you simply bring the couple together and say, okay, so you've fallen out of love. I'm very sorry. I represent the state and here's the deal. You will find that for the next while, your relationship will be difficult. And as a couple, as a romantic couple, as it were, is a a married, that's over. Okay. But your relationship as parents, as father and mother to your children, that's not over. And we, the state insist that it not be over. But not alone that, we're not just bringing the boot down on top of you, we're going to help you to ensure that it's not over. And that although you may not be able to imagine it now, we can help to bring you to a place where you can cooperate to, in the best part, to maximize the benefit and the absence of damage to your children arising from your breakup. And that's what we we'll try to do. That's the solution.
0: The language around it is disgusting. This idea that the father should be allowed a concession Never mind concession. It's his God-given right to have access to his children. They're his children too. Like I I just find the whole thing despicable. It is despicable. It is despicable. To those who who might be thinking, oh, you know, we'll look at that case. Is it baby Will in New Zealand? I might have got the name of the baby wrong. I'm sorry for that. I don't listen to the fake news media, but that baby has just been taken into the care of the so-called care of the state because the parents don't wish the child to have a blood transfusion of vaccinated blood. Now, to me, that makes perfect sense. It's a little tiny baby, a child who needs some sort of emergency heart operation or some sort of very important heart surgery where blood transfusion is required. They're not denying that. They're not refusing that. They're just saying that we'd prefer to have unvaccinated blood, please, yes. because this is a small baby. It could be dangerous. We don't know the long-term side effects of these MNRA vaccines. All perfectly reasonable. Yes. And I thought very simply argued and look at what's just happened. They've taken, that yes. baby now does not belong to those parents. Well, as far as I understand it, wasn't that the plan all along?
1: Yeah, a further point there is that they had actually identified potential donors who were unvaccinated. So there was no issue. It wasn't a question that there was no blood available. But yes.
0: Thank you, see, you. Yes. I heard that. Thank you. Yeah.
1: We had a referendum here in Ireland in 2012, which is allegedly to give rights to children. But in actual fact, it was the transfer of rights from the parents to the states. Because obviously, self-evidently, a little one-year-old child crawling around the mat doesn't have the capacity to go to the high court to vindicate his or her rights or to employ lawyers or instruct them. <laughs> the way things used to work is that these rights are all vested in the parents who are assumed on the basis that they love this child to whom they gave life, will have its best interest at heart. And until such time as that's proven to be not the case in any particular individual case, then that's what should be presumed. That's what the court always presumed. But now the state knows best and the state is the super parent. That's what they wanted. So all of this is a preparation for what I'm talking. is the human 2.0. It's the transhumanist agenda where man will be half biology, half fiber optic cables and so on. And this was what they were working for all along. And even though it's somewhat of a leap for me to actually believe this now, I have this intuition that somewhere in the culture that I was dealing with back then 20 years ago, there was some knowledge that this was what the plan was. Because everything that was done in relation to my writing and the blocking of you know, any kind of furtherance of what you might call the natural model, the organic model of parenthood, was being stopped, was being blocked at source. And I wasn't allowed to talk. I was frustrated in trying to write about it and talk about it.
0: You've inadvertently stumbled across part of the Evil Ones master plan as a younger journalist, you were doing yes. something diligently that's responsible, that's honest, that's decent, that's for the good of humanity, and you were getting all of this bizarre stuff happening to that's you. That's exactly and actually, right. actually, we know, now find out that there was a real reason behind that, and well, it was a
1: deeply sinister one. Well, that's the amazing thing, Sarah, that strikes me about this. Because when I listen to David Ike, I'm astonished about listening to David, because it was one of those who didn't really pay him any attention because they misunderstood those first kind of dispatches from the Ike c- camp Ike, if you like... But now I understand. But we're looking back and retracing his history, which is like that he has been fighting these battles and stumbled upon this 30-odd years ago. That's what he was given. But you know, in a funny kind of way, even though I can't claim that I had that kind of insight or intuition at the time, nevertheless, I stumbled into this area slightly later, but not that much later, in this context. Because in so many ways, you talked about the idea of concessions there. In so many ways, this replicated or predicted what we're dealing with now, because actually, what they're doing now in the general context is to brutalise the general population in the way they were brutalising fathers at that time, and offering them, as you said, precisely concessions instead of rights. So, yeah, okay, so you can visit, you can have your child every second Saturday at McDonald's, but that's not a right. That's your, that you, that and it would generally be worked to the mother. The mother was conceding this right, so the state didn't even want to underwrite it in general. So. In a strange way, this was a very early predictor of these things. And I stumbled upon it in two ways. First of all, because when I was writing my first play, I ran into some people who were already experiencing an early version of this and started to talk to them and so on. And I was dealing with a director who had some experience of divorce and divorce law and so on. And then, as I say, this happened to me myself. And I realized, oh my God, I've written. The funny thing about that was going back to the Journal hours, They came after me for reasons that I won't go into now in the context of a certain kind of celebrity dimension to the story. And they were looking for stories, scraping around, looking for any kind of angle. And the bizarre thing there was that I had written this play, Long Black Quote, which is entirely predictive of the situation I was in, except that the child at the heart of that story was a boy. And in my case, it was a girl. And there was in existence a book form of text, a script of the play available in any bookshop. And if they had just picked it up, they could have the most extraordinary, remarkable synthesis of fiction and fact in my life. And nobody ever found it. Nobody ever traced it. Nobody ever knew it existed, which is remarkable. One thing about you have to say about journal liars, they're always good for a laugh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. So with my thoughts are that it's possible that the editors were being handled in some way there because this was obviously a long-term agenda. Yes. So. All those phone calls that you were getting at the weekend yes. from the editors, from the lawyers. Well, we now know what, it, it yes. seems very apparent to me, at least, that we now know why that was. So we've yeah. got that sort of element of control. And yeah, 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 for sure. I briefly referenced MI5 earlier and that sort of things. I openly said that I think that a certain section of journalists are MI5 agents. I firmly believe that. And I think there's, if you look at history, there's good evidence that it would make sense that yeah. journalists have been working for, and not just their money they get from the paper, let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. But also, then there's this other group, isn't there? Of, we talked about earlier that that want the money, and they want the prestige, and they want the better topics that they would prefer to write about, and they want more prominence towards the front of pages or whatever. But then there's a, I think there's a third type of journalier, as you put it, I love that word. As far as we can tell, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Waters invented journalier, which is really, really awesome. The other one I know is Prestitute, and that was invented by Gerald Salente. So there you go, two awesome gentlemen, yeah. and we have these, this wonderful language, and we thank you for it. But this third group that I'm interested in, are there a section, and I'm asking because I don't know, is there a section of journalists who really love it, who really love forwarding government agenda or some of these other darker, do you detect or do you mm. know of an element within journalism who really get off on it, who really enjoy this tyranny?
1: Yes. This is really interesting. And again, it's a somewhat tentative kind of sketch. But I think it's reasonably accurate. You see, something happened to the media in the last 20, 25, 30 years, very slowly, incrementally. And I think it was orchestrated. It wasn't a spontaneous or kind of thing. It was deliberately created for a particular purpose. And in the main, it came from the formalization of journalistic training in academic courses and so on. Previous to that, journalists worked on the beach for provincial newspapers and so on. And they went out to courtrooms and they did court reports and reports on traffic accidents and run up the police station and got today's accidents or whatever. And that was their first job. But then they went to the colleges and started learning about Marx. And they came out then fully qualified as really something other than journalists, because journalism had been really a process of inquiry. You were kind of a... An interventionist in particular, you are a medium or a middleman in the different interactions between the public and different players. And that's the thing, like, for example, that came up in our court case, where I was trying to explain to the court, because they were saying, oh, you don't have any expert witnesses. I said, but, you know, we are experts. We are experts in talking to experts about what the hell they're saying and explaining that to the public. We're the intermediaries who make sense because we are trained in that way to translate from the kind of jargon of the profession into everyday speech so the ordinary citizen can understand it. But journalists were they were really blue-collar workers up to relatively recently. And they worked their way up and you could be a copy boy and become an editor. That was possible at one time and did happen. But then you see in the recent decades, journalists kind of came to be kind of like almost part of the elite's. Like the stars began to earn more money and they were paid and they could negotiate big contracts and so on. And they got big bylines and there were celebrities and so on. And then, you know, columnists and so on, that was all. And they became almost like some form of gurus or sages or, you know, shamans in the society. And this caused them to kind of get notions and a sense of being players and being important. And that then started to cause a lot of drift. In the nature of journalism and the nature of the way that the reality was being reported, and so on. So, by the time we, as journalists, got to where we were in, say, the last decade, about a decade ago, everything had changed completely, and journalists were kind of pushing ideological agendas, and they were—they didn't see themselves as discoverers of truth and fact. They were, as I say, players. So, in a sense. That made sense then, that if it was possible to be noticed by, say, a political party, this would have been unthinkable to the previous generations, whereby, oh, you've written a column, yeah, very interesting, very good, or we don't necessarily always agree with you, but, you know, we're looking for a PR man and we think you might fit the bill. Then the journalists would accept that and take a sabbatical from his journalism and go off and represent politicians for three years and then come back to journalism and continue as if nothing had happened, which is unthinkable, really, objectively speaking. So contamination,
0: it was, isn't it? Yeah, oh, so there was, contamination. All this, there
1: was all this kind of thing going. And it's funny you, know, you asked me that question in relation to do I think that there were certain people. I didn't think this is a time, but I do now think that there was a particular individual in the very end of my time in the Irish Times who appeared as the deputy editor and he was in charge of the op-ed page. And he certainly, you know, the relationship with that figure in the previous 20 years had been pretty remote. When they would take over the job, they would kind of make a big show of inviting you maybe for lunch and discussing about what themes you might bring into your column or something like that. And then they would forget all about you and just be glad that you got your copy in (laughs) on time. But this guy was quite persistent and he wanted to meet up regularly for cups of coffee and so on. He never brought me for lunch now. You know, he brought me to the canteen and the Irish Times upstairs in the top floor and then bought me a cup of coffee in. And I kind of got the impression, you know, that sort of sense you get there's something going on here that I don't know what it is. For sure. like. Why is he taking this time? Why is he taking this trouble? Now, turn on, he was gay, actually. And there was a referendum in within a year or two about marriage. And it was perceived, perhaps, that I might be one of the troublemakers if that time came. Because I had actually stood out against the children's rights referendum, along with a very small number of people. And we almost won that one, you know, like a handful of us. <laughs> so I would have been identified as a possible threat. So he would talk. I'm going to go around in circles, you know, talking about what to write, what I would write about, and so on, and so on, and so on, and he would be steering me in Jeffrey, I could see him steering me, and I just, it didn't really bother me, because I was used to this, inside so I worked for the mail, and they have a thing there where they call it direction, you know, very, sounds very Aurelian terms, but they would, you would get the editor would ring you up every Thursday or something. I was writing for Sunday paper. I'd ring you up on Thursday, and he would spend an hour and a half talking, shooting the breeze on the phone, but I actually quite enjoyed these chats, and he was a nice guy, and I got on very well with him, and I never felt in any way imposed upon, even though he would be directing me away from certain teams and on to certain others. But always it was ambiguous on the sense that it was maybe the other team was more interesting. And very rarely would he actually say, no, no, don't write about that because whatever. But this was different. This was a sense that this guy was kind of trying to stop me doing certain things and encourage me to do other things and ridicule certain positions I might take and that kind of thing. And really when I look now at the stand back that this remove and see the context of the paper's role in different political events and ideological events over that period, I realized that all this was deliberate, that this was in you know, all planned, because there were a number of episodes in that period which were clearly interventions in major stories in a way that was not journalistic.
0: For sure. It's that whole whispering in your ear, but they do it nicely. Everyone yeah. always thinks that if it's MI5, it's shady or it's going to be dark. And it's it doesn't work like that. If you read no. The Little, you probably have read this several times, but if people read The Little Drama Girl, that gives you a much John le Carré novel. Mm. It gives you a much better insight into how MI5, MI6, and Mossad and etc. operate. operates. And it's like what we've just seen with the Convid 1984. They're selling you your own death nicely. They're doing it with a smile on their Whoa. face because they want to help you. Are they not?
1: You know, this is an, an amazing thing, Sarah, I like that I'm now only beginning to cotton on to, that a lot of people who would sort of just drift into your life and seem to be like, because you're you oh, you a very charismatic person, so of course he's interested in talking to me.
0: Quite right. <laughs> but,
1: but actually, then you realize at a certain point, there's a moment in a certain conversation where you just look and there's too much intensity in the gaze. There's a kind of distractedness about your answer. Yeah. There's some slight hint of dissatisfaction on these that you say, oh, that's not what... It's almost like you can feel a sense of something like, well, like we've been talking now for three years and you don't seem to be making any progress. <laughs> that kind of thing.
0: I'd love you to write something about that one day. I really would love yeah. to read it. I, you've got you've got it. You, right there, what you've just said, that beautiful sentence. That's it right there. Yeah, I'm with <laughs> yeah. you all
1: the way. Yeah, you, suddenly a whole new vista opens up for you about how the world actually works. And how much do you think, well, has this been going on all my life? Am I blind Mm -hmm. to all this this interventionism, this direction in my life, or attempted direction?
0: You suddenly realize that you are the star of the Truman Show.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Your own Truman Show. Exactly, right. And that nothing (laughs) is what it seems, and everything we know is wrong. (laughs) For sure. It's incredible. So I think in answer to your question, yeah, I do think there are a lot of people within the media. Of course there are who are doing this. But I mean, what they're doing now more as they're doing in politics more than anything else is they're putting people in place who are not being put in place because they're talented. On the contrary, talented will be regarded as a very dangerous thing or not because they have ideas. Ideas will be regarded as even a more dangerous thing, but because they're basically non-entities with no particular qualities as journalists who can be relied upon to fill the spaces with the correct kinds of ideas and thoughts.
0: Yeah, I see that. I really do. I feel it and I see it. It's interesting that where this conversation has taken us, I'm really deeply excited to hear your thoughts on some of those things, particularly the three different types of liars, as I've categorized it. It's wonderful to have somebody here who knows, who's been there to unpick this for me. One of the things that I read in your awesome sub stack, and I'll just read that again, John Waters writes Unchained. His Substack is called Unchained. But if you type in johnwaters.substack.com, you shall find it and you can subscribe to read him there. I read something in, I think it was June 2021, about Jordan Peterson's mysterious silence on the subject of COVID-19. And you wrote a wonderful, it's a very long piece, a wonderful, detailed piece. Now, there's lots of people with very, very lazy attitudes towards Dr. Peterson. And they just say, oh, he's a shill. He's a right wing this. He's a blah, blah, that. You are not one of those people. You are somebody who's clearly watched him and read him and listened to him for quite some time. And like you, John, I have a deep respect for many of that gentleman's work. Yes. I've read one and a half of his three books. I've read 12 rules for life. I'm part way through 12 more rules for life. And I've got his maps of meaning for when I've finished the second in his 12 rules of life series. And I've watched an awful lot of his lectures, including stuff about mythology and psychology. I haven't just watched all of the famous stuff with his landmark interviews and such forth. What compelled you to write back in June 21 about Jordan's silence on, on COVID? What was it that made you do that? Well,
1: very simply that I wondered where he was. Now, I knew where he was. He'd been ill, but he had come back
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he'd been very ill. And I'd been very ill myself sometime around the same time. But I was back and I said, well, he's back. Okay. So now what's he saying? And he wasn't saying anything about this so-called pandemic. And I was puzzled by that. And that was because it seemed to me that, possibly more so than any other person on the planet. He had the capacity to make a serious impact in one fell swoop. One intervention by him, if it were the right one, might have really thrown the cat among the pigeons.
0: Agreed, because he had an enormous audience. Millions of people follow this guy. And he has the experience of all of that reading he's done into the travesties of the massacres of the 20th century. He's very well read on all of that stuff, isn't he?
1: He is extraordinary. and And nothing could have been more kind of opposite him to make a connection. And he was forensic in his attacks and really extraordinary. I mean, I no, I'm not at all skeptic about Peterson in general. I think he's a genius of kind. and I do too. So I wanted him with us. In a way, what I was trying to do was hoping that the article would get out and that would provoke from him some response that would have had him say, okay, well, here's what I think. But he had said a couple of unfortunate things. I mean, he had a line in one video where he said, which came out as, you know, well, take the goddamn vaccine. That's not quite what he said. He was sort of saying that almost, I might even say this in exasperation. It wasn't quite the context of a, an instruction or whatever, but it was something which could have been taken for that. And it was a lazy. But in general, I mean, I was looking at the fact that he'd been extremely ill, he'd come back. And then I started watching all these videos he'd done. And every so often this subject would come back, come up, and came up with, I think, in various people. I can't remember now, Dave Rubin, I think, and people like that. And Mm -hmm. he would just go kind of quiet and he would listen to the question and then he would seem to be about to answer it and then he would change the subject completely.
0: Agreed. He was deflecting, he was ducking and diving, he was doing all of the things that he would, as a psychologist, he would point out in somebody else ordinarily, wouldn't he? Yes, (laughs) yeah. He was extraordinary. So I, I wrote
1: about this and now, I've been watching him ever since. And he hasn't remained totally silent. But it's kind of hard to describe what he's done because what he's done is not what you want him to do. And it's it hasn't been effective. But he's on the right side now in general. Uh, he's obviously very, very hostile to Trudeau in Canada, in his own country, naturally. And it connects to the truckers. He supported the truckers, and that was fine. That was good. He talks about the food shortages, the tax on farmers very much. And he elliptically talks about COVID in that context, but he doesn't full-frontally attack the main propositions of the pandemic in any way. And now, that's very interesting because it somehow gels. I know he's Canadian. He's not in the United States. not American in that sense. But it gels with the experience I met referred to of watching the American intellectual class in general not respond to the pandemic. Because they all seem to take it almost literally from the beginning. And I, I kind of, Put that down to some extent to what happened in New York, that there was such a, apparently a huge explosion of whatever this was in New York, which I, my own thesis that that was where one of the bioweapons was released, but that's a long story and we don't want to go into it. But to, you know, just to kind of go, like if you look at across the, the spectrum of American intellectuals, like take someone like Victor Davis Hansen, who's right about everything, it seems to me, brilliant, <laughs> but on COVID, he had for over a year and a half, he had nothing to say and still has very sparing things to say about it. And Steve Bannon was very bad. And then he, he's got better, but I kind of lost interest, I think.
0: It's easier after the fact, though, isn't it? Yeah. So it's all very well for Bannon to be saying this stuff now, but hang on a minute. We were the ones taking, you were the one being abused by the Power Rangers yeah. on their little silly bicycles. And yeah. I was the one being shot at because yeah. nobody wanted to look at and my charts and graphs and all the rest of it. And what sticks in the, the call time.
1: with Bannon is that, yeah, and that's he clearly did consider doing it with me. And I think we could have done a very yeah. kind of arresting interview about it that would have been very informative. Because, I mean, this idea that, oh, well, that's parochial, that's Ireland, we're American, that doesn't carry any weight anymore. It's a small world now. And particularly something that is a global phenomenon. I get irritated with people who say on my website, well, say on Substack, some of your articles are all about Ireland. Well, yeah, but Ireland as emblematic of the world like I use Ireland as a, an example because that's the place I'm most familiar with, but it's the ideas and the events are really universal now. So Peterson, you know, seemed to kind of be part of that kind of evasiveness, whatever it was. And I still haven't nailed what it was, you know, it just
0: doesn't make sense because he's from Alberta. Yeah. He's from a small town north of Alberta. Now Alberta has some of the most draconian measures yeah. imaginable during the pandemic. It was worse than most other places. It was one of the worst places on the planet. Yes, it was. They went COVID crazy. And I no, because I was watching rebel news, so I'm not just sort of spouting. I, I spent many, many hours, far too many hours, if the truth be told, listening to rebel news who had journalists on the ground in Alberta doing their job. And I was begging and pleading for Peterson to come out and just Give them some attention and just say it, man. Just say it. But
1: even now, say it.
0: Even now. don't
1: sure. say it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, he could do in two hours. I'll do it him. You'll do it. Need,
0: we'll do it. Let's do it. Come on, Jordan. Let's do it. Let's, well, I, I think on, you, like, Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Sumption, the former Supreme yeah. Court judge, and Gemma Doherty should get on let's do it. four-way panel and do it. Yeah. For sure.
1: Yeah. But you see, there's a very another interesting dimension of this. I remember a few years ago, it's kind of died out now, and it was a kind of a very much an affected phenomenon to my mind. It was the idea of the intellectual dark web. I mean, like mm. I kind of am wary of people who self-describe as intellectuals. I don't like it.
0: Me too. <laughs> you know. <laughs>
1: but then when you say you're oh, the intellectual dark web, that implies that there's something very kind of you have something very important to say that everybody's trying to extinguish or something. Well, okay. There's about, five, I think maybe five or six of these guys. And I look at each one of them and they're all suspect under various headings, particularly under the heading of COVID. Ally Linson Peterson, Sam Harris, who is complete COVIDian, it seems to me. Douglas Murray, who has been virtually mum on the entire thing. Dave Rubin, who has been very ambivalent. I think he may even have, I don't know. I mean, but he certainly hasn't been in the vanguard of resistance. And Ben Shapiro who has been basically advocating vaccination. And again, Jordan Peterson, who has seemed to do the same thing and has somewhat retracted that particular aspect, but has not gone into the kind of depth that we need from him about the dangers that this now represents. And he can, you know, I mean, he could simply come on and say, look, I didn't get this. I was ill. I'd accept that. I actually wrote that into the article I wrote. I'm prepared to, I understand. He was yep. really ill. I mean He really, really was ill. I can see it. And indeed, I did have that thought. I did. I uttered it in the article. Was his illness in any way connected with the fact that I have said, the idea that I have raised that an intervention from Jordan Peterson would be perhaps one of the most impactful things you could possibly imagine, particularly if it came down on the anti-side? Interesting question. I don't know. I just don't know. But maybe he does.
0: I read that at the time and I thought, oh, thank God, there's at least one other person. And I was really chuffed that it was such an esteemed journalist as yourself, John, that I was like, oh, yes, somebody else is at least as crazy as me. And it's somebody who matters, somebody who writes beautifully, who people listen to. And I was really, it really gave me a little bit of a kick that day. I thought, thank goodness. I had also thought that there's something wrong here because he cries a lot in interviews. And there's, whenever he speaks and gets into something really dark or really interesting or really intense, there's something that he's not saying. He's stopping himself from speaking and you can see it in his face and he goes red, he cries. And you You wrote, uh, I'm just going to quote this little section from that piece that I'm talking about. It is first of all possible that he knows something momentous that he cannot say, something dark and ominous and possibly unspeakable. And that encapsulates beautifully, those are the words that fit the picture of the man who is literally wriggling in his seat, red, and then often cries afterwards. There's something, that's not just stress, that's not just... my life's crazy and busy. There's something there. And it's always when these very difficult, dark topics come up. And it, he's wrestling with He's fighting his own demons there. Is he yeah. not? There's something oh, There's something about that.
1: Definitely. He's like a prisoner of some kind, of something that we don't mm-hmm. understand. The same could be said of Murray. I mean, Murray's latest book is called War on the West. Well, nothing represents a greater evidence of that War on the West than the COVID scam. That is the war. That is the war we've been engaged in for three years. And yet he doesn't mention that war in that spirit in the book. And nor does we meet these people. There's lots of American intellectuals who write about COVID as it's like, oh, well, back there in 2020, there was this major threat to the world because of COVID. No, there wasn't. There was a major threat to the world because of lockdown, because of the failure of the intellectual classes to rise up against it. Yeah, and the artistic classes, the artists, the poets, the writers and painters and musicians. Yes, there was that. But there was no existential threat to the world's health on the basis of some head cold.
0: It's funny that you pulled out Douglas Murray there as well because James Dellingpole interviewed him during the pandemic. James Dellingpole has his Dellingpot, of course. And because as far as I understand it, James Dellingpole and Douglas Murray are quite well acquainted. I think they're friends. And James was very clever. He tried to sort of Tease and provoke him, try to pull him around and get him to say something. But he literally wouldn't talk. And eventually James just asked him outright about masks and Douglas completely refused to answer the question. Well, there you he are. wouldn't even talk to his own friend on his podcast about something so important. And he wrote the strange death of Europe, Douglas Murray, yes. if, that, if I remember correctly. So he, on the one hand, he can clearly see some of these awful agendas that are yeah. imposed upon us destroy us and, and he's destroy not, the West. That's
1: very important. And he's very courageous. Like, yes, oh, for, for sure. He really puts it out there. That book thats a fantastic book. And The Madness of Crowds is a great book about woke.
0: And Agreed. Yes, I've read that also. Yeah, a wonderful book. Yes, yep. but he seems to kind of retreat. I mean, and now the latest,
1: I mean, there's a very good video up by a guy called Gonzalo Lira on YouTube about Douglas Murray's visit to Kherson in Ukraine in the recent past where he's basically on one of those trips, which are all you know, those kind of trips where you're brought to the war zone by one side, you're shown around at the things that they want you to see. You're accompanied by your other colleagues. He's mentioned Bernard Andre Levy, the French philosopher who people may remember. He's the guy who wears the white shirts, which are opened up down to the belly button. But Murray, he basically seems to like treat the thing like a journalist, just out of journalism college, thinking, "Oh, I'm very privileged to be here, being shown around Carson and the war zone." So I'm going to write a very positive article about NATO and the United States for the New York Post, which he does. That's not the Douglas Murray of the Strange Death of Europe. It's not the Douglas Murray of Madness of Crowds. I have a copy of War Against the West, but I haven't been able, I haven't had the stomach to read it. I'm terrified of what I might find in it. I mean, like, I know there's nothing about the day in no way it does he implicate COVID in this war. And yet I would say, Sarah, I mean, this is, I'm leaving myself wide open. I do not believe there is anything as significant. I get this all the time, by the way. I used to get it in the beginning. Oh, from people in Ireland who would be signing on because of my past work as a journalist. And After a while, they'd get fed up and say, oh, you're writing about COVID all the time. Can you not write about anything else? That you're blowing it out of all proportion. Oh. And I say, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, because it's not possible to blow COVID this out of proportion. Is this is the most important thing that has happened in our lifetimes and perhaps for a millennium. There's nothing on earth as significant as this that I can think of now or at any time in the recent past.
0: And that's why, when you speculated that perhaps Jordan Peterson had been physically, not just psychologically, got that, but perhaps even physically got it, I know it's just a suggestion, it's just a mm-hmm. hypothesis. I'm aware of that, but I think you're bang over the target here because if you li- that little list that we had there, Ben Shapiro. This is the intellectual dark web people. Ben Shapiro, Douglas Murray, Dave Rubin, Sam Harris, and Dr. Jordan Peterson. Of all of those, Dr. Jordan Peterson is head and shoulders above, yeah. in my opinion, based yeah. on the work he's done, particularly in his clinical practice. He's not just a professor of psychology. This is a guy who has been a proper psychologist. He's done his oh. well over his 10,000 hours yeah. of surgery. So this is someone who's not just an academic. He's really been somewhere and done things with real people in the real world. Yeah. He's dangerous because he's An excellent public speaker. His speaking tours are remarkable. His books are fantastic. They're extremely readable, even though he's very learned and he manages to pull together many, many threads and crunch it down into quite a short sentence that's dense, but it's very readable. He he has a real talent for that, which surprised me because I didn't consider him to be a writer like you, John, but he he really is.
1: He has a profound moral reach that he is capable of articulating in the most extraordinarily graphic and beautiful way.
0: And that's why he's
1: he He's devastating. And he understands all this history. He has talked about Soviet tyranny. He has talked about Nazi tyranny. He has talked about it all. And he understands these ideas in their complexity. I mean, I have been doing a lot of work to try to draw attention to the work of Matthias Desmet, the Belgian psychologist who has brought... Yes. He is filling the gap very well, very ably, that Jordan Peterson has vacated. But that's the space that Gordon should be in, and he's not in it, and he's noticeably absent from it.
0: Peterson is perfectly placed. He has all of the historical reading he's done. Mm. He's been working on his faith, his spirituality, his now Christianity. I think he's finally decided that he is, after all, a Christian, even though he's shied away from that for quite a number of years. He's perfectly placed on as a professor of psychology, formerly of Toronto University, but he's nevertheless still been a professor of psychology and an actual real working psychologist with real patients. and given the fan base and the interest that he's managed to bring in over the years, because he'd rightly spoke out against Bill C-16 in Canada, where they were trying to compel speech over these ridiculous pronouns. He's been absolutely on the front lines of all of the really nitty gritty stuff. But then when the Nazis were practically goose-stepping down his own street in Alberta, he was completely shum. It's such a difficult thing to bend your head around that I do wonder if you weren't right that he had been physically got at, And that there's a little bit of evidence here that I don't know if you might have seen this already or not. At the time, I'm not sure, your article came out. I can't remember whether it was slightly before or slightly after the attack done. There was a hit job done on Jordan Peterson by the Times of London. It might have been the Sunday Times of London, but I think it was the Times of London. And what the Petersons did, which was very clever, is they videoed the whole session. So the journalist from the Times of London was interviewing Peterson via Skype or Zoom or something like that. And the Petersons recorded the whole thing. And it was a good job they did because the hit piece was disgraceful compared with the two or three hours that Jordan sat and talked to this so-called journalist, as you would call a journal liar. She really was one of those journal liars. My goodness me, it's disgraceful. But what comes out during that two, two and a half hours, something like that, Michaela Peterson was there because she was her father was still pretty sick. So she was sat with him during the interview and she was sort of almost acting like an agent. Not exactly, but she was acting as a father's agent, let's say, that day. And she came out with something which was really remarkable to the journalist, which obviously never got published. But she said that when he arrived in Russia, the medical team said he'd been poisoned. Yes. Now, she didn't believe it. Michaela Peterson didn't believe that he'd been poisoned. She was just telling the journalist, oh, yeah, the Russians thought he'd been poisoned, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, whoa, wind that back a second. Excuse me? Well, Go on.
1: Can I just say there, I mean, his wife became ill at the same time. Mm-hmm. Very seriously, yeah. Now, we are beginning to understand that the capacities do exist remotely to impose illness on people. There's no question about it. That, that these technologies they have with the use of radiation, and 5G, is the latest development, they are capacities that they have that we don't know about, that are not formally known about. Because as soon as you mention them, the liars say, oh, it's conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. And then even after, like three weeks after the WHO, whoever it is, will have said the same thing. The journaliers are still saying, oh, that's conspiracy theory, just to be sure. like So, I don't know. This is speculation, but what we're trying to do here is to try to find hypotheses that would fit the behavior, that would oh, explain what might be happening. I don't say that any of this ha- necessarily happened, but if it had it wouldn't be a surprise if we were to discover that this is what happened. Then it wouldn't be a surprise given the way he has been behaving, the odd way, which is so deeply uncharacteristic of him.
0: Why would the medical team in Russia just say, oh, your father has been poisoned and you've brought him? I think the quote was, your father has been poisoned and you have brought him here to die. And that's what the medical team in Russia said to Michaela Peterson. Michaela Peterson dismissed it. She was just telling the journalier what had happened word for word, when they arrived in Russia, etc. Yes. And I suddenly thought, oh my goodness. And then read your article and, and I was like, oh, and that was something that... And at the end of the day, the Russians should know, shouldn't they?
1: Yes. I think. Like, I like, think why
0: would a medical team say that if they didn't think it, it was true?
1: I think that happened after my article, actually. I seem to recall now. I don't think it... It certainly wasn't something I was, had access to at the time when I was researching the article. And I, I looked at everything he had done right back from February when he reappeared.
0: No, because I nearly sent it to you. I thought I need to send you that, but I didn't dare at the time. I thought, no, I'll wait. I'll wait a bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, but again, I mean, let us just reiterate that I think we're both on the same page on this point, Sarah. That all what we're saying here is we're saying it because of our reverence for Dr. Pearson and for (laughs) our desire that he would be free to speak his mind. And that he would do so and that if he could be encouraged at all to speak more frankly about what is happening, given, I mean, I would put to you and to him and to the listeners what David Icke says about all of this, you know, that people who say, well, I'm not saying Jordan Peterson is saying this, you know, to say, well, but we don't want to say anything because of the consequences that we might suffer. We might lose our jobs or whatever. Now that doesn't apply to Jordan Peterson. And so therefore they stay silent. And David Icke says, well, just do waste. Just do wait until you see the consequences of your silence.
0: Yeah, I think that's what's torturing Jordan Peterson when he gets into these situations where he's bright red in the face and clearly having a wrestle with his own conscience over how to say something or whether to say something. Or You can see it if you've watched enough of his videos. It happens frequently. I must just say that I'm slightly concerned about his recent alliance with Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire. Yeah, I'm slightly concerned that Ben Shapiro might be whispering to Dr. Jordan, one well, of those little ear whisperers. I don't like it.
1: The Ben Shapiro thing is a complete mystery to me in general because I don't see what all the talk is about. Why would anybody sit for an hour watching this guy? Listen to him; he has nothing to say. I honestly don't say. I mean, Jordan has. I agree. Has. I agree. With you. Douglas Murray has those two definitely. Uh, Sam Harris seems to have gone completely bonkers over Trump. We won't even go into that. He's destroyed himself oh. by his bizarre. Pronouncements on that or around that subject. Dave Rubin, you know, he's so, so, you know, he's been on the road with Jordan Pearson, and, you know, that things play. I wouldn't find him particularly interesting, but certainly Jordan Peterson is in a class of his own. There's no figure on the globe to my mind who has made such startling and clear cut and clear sighted interventions in public discussion as has Jordan Pearson, at the level that he has done so in the last five yeah. years and I wish him well in every sense, and I want him to be with us at this crucial moment in the history of the human race.
0: That was beautifully put, John. Thank you very much indeed. I literally, I won't even try topping that. That's exactly what we want from Mr. Peterson. And I can only support you 100% in those statements. I really wish that he would just be free and stand up and truly speak his mind. And he might be surprised that The result of that and I I really hope that he
1: I would say to him further, there's nothing they can do to him. Not now. The world will gather around him if he speaks.
0: I agree, I agree. Here's to hoping. Well, it strikes me that that's a fantastic way to finish on what is going to be a wonderful Christmas day, I'm sure. What a fabulous gift that you've given to myself and my listeners, John. Thank you very, very much indeed for being so generous with your time and so frank with your opinions and your experiences and just Thank you for being here and giving us this wonderful gift on Christmas Day.
1: It's been a great pleasure, sir. I very much enjoyed it and I think it's just been a very interesting discussion for me to bring all of these thoughts up and get the opportunity to tease them out in this way. It's been great and I hope it is useful to people as well and that we have, as you say also, have some form of uplift in it. I think these are dark times and sometimes we can appear to be dwelling on negative things but... By dwelling on negative of things, we're not immersing ourselves for the sake of it. We are actually seeking to explore them so that we can dissipate that negativity and bring us to a new place in the world. And and that's our purpose, you know, that's why we're here, that's what we're doing. We're not interested in simply sinking into the morass of gloom that has been put in front of us for the last three years. And I'm very hopeful about that. If we can only continue to awaken the people, that's why I would really dearly love if Jordan Peterson would join this discussion in a really meaningful way, because that would really make a difference.
0: It'd be a great lift, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a wonderful Christmas gift? Yeah. Matthias Desmet says that what we're doing here is really important, doesn't he? He says yes. that we must keep speaking. We Whatever happens, it. the likes of you and I must keep speaking, yes. keep writing. Very important. I comfort myself with that, that at least we're doing that fundamental thing, which should prevent, yes, well, at least further genocide.
1: I had a realization about that earlier this year where, cause I used to feel, well, look, what can we do? We're getting tiny audiences really, relatively speaking. We're keeping the flames late, but perhaps no more. And, but then I come to realize now that that's based on the premise that we need to get to kind of 51% of the public consciousness, but we actually don't for a critical mass. We don't need anything remotely like that. So we don't know the day or the hour than that. that Soft tick or trip will carry us over, across into the new understanding, the new consciousness, and there are all of these things will converge in an almost magical way in the public mind. And I think we're doing that, in spite of all our limitations. That just by doing it, as Matthias says, if we softly state the truth at every opportunity, that will have its own effect. And that that idea goes right through the whole history of resistance to tyranny in this, in, in, in places like Czechoslovakia and like Václav Havel and those guys, they reiterated it again and again and again that the important thing is to do the thing for the sake of doing it. Refuse to obey for the sake of doing it. Not for an audience, not for a gallery, not for a result even, but because it's the right thing to do. And if you do that, as it were, blindly every day in every little way you can think of doing it, then it will have an impact. That's what he calls Havel called the power of the powerless. And he thought that was the most powerful thing of all. That the power of the powerless can actually overturn. It's the power of David over Goliath. So we shouldn't ever forget that, you know, that just by being here and by speaking, we are actually contributing to the movement. The best day the enemy had was the very first day. That's when they had all power. Every moment since the their power has been draining away. Our job is to ensure that we stay the course so that we don't give up the day before victory comes.
0: What a fabulous gift, John. Several gifts you've given there to us and I cannot express how grateful I am to you. Wonderful, wonderful words. May I take this opportunity to finally promote one more time John Waters Substack, guys. It's called Unchained. It's johnwaters.substack.com. And John, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a healthy, happy, and prosperous New Year.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. It's very great pleasure to be talking to you. Um, I wish everybody a happy Christmas.
0: Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit saraplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.